0: Our reading will be taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 11. We'll start in verse 20, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, and read down through the end of the chapter, verse 30. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then he, speaking of Christ, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And to you, Capernaum, will and you, Capernaum, pardon me, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the father except the son, nor does anyone know the father. Uh, Let me back up. Verse 27 again. All things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. We come to you at this first Sabbath of the new year, God. We come to find rest again for our souls. Rest on a battlefield, rest in a wilderness that doesn't produce anything that we really so desperately need. We are not a self-sufficient people. The, The turning of the new year has not seen this little church become such a strong and such a clever group of people that we can handle what comes next on our own. We are as needy today at the beginning of this year as we have ever been. So we turn our face toward you, God, it's you that we need. It's not simply a set of truths, and we appreciate the truths. We're thankful that you've explained things. You've laid them out in a way that we can understand. We thank you for giving us this book so that we can go back any time over and over and and our eyes can roll over these astonishing words. God, we thank you for the gathering of believers and the spiritual family you've given us, but that's not enough. We thank you for true conversion, to be brought from death to life, raised from a spiritual grave, united to Him, to be washed and clothed, to be accepted, to know that our sins against you, which now, to your children, God, these are the worst, the most unbearable of things, and they are really forgiven. God, as beautiful as conversion is, the beginning of new life, it's not enough. It's not enough for us to look back in history and see how you've kept your word and to teach about it and talk about it. It's not enough to read the biographies of Christians for the last 2,000 years and to see how you've worked through common men and women, how you've changed the lives of young people. It is you, the I am, right now that we so desperately need So we come to you, infinite and unchanging God. We come to you, the only faithful one, the self-existing, who needs nothing outside of himself. You are all completeness. You are whole. You are self-existing, self-sufficient. And we come to you because you've commanded us. You've told us to come and to meet you at a throne of mercy and grace, so we come. Where else could we bear to see you? But we come hoping. You have been faithful. You have kept your word. And the turn of a new year on our calendar just reminds us that you are the unchanging and immutably perfect one. So we, with all of our ups and downs, rest our souls in you again. And we come again. And we take that yoke of Christ again. And we pray that you would teach us again. God, work in us. Show us who you are. And then so change us by the sight that tomorrow when we go to work, that today when we get in the car to go home, Our lives would be a reflection, imperfect as they are, common, unimpressive. But God, able to reflect you. Get great glory to your son across this world, in every nation, in every house and home, in every church. God, we pray that Christ's name would be exalted. Every other name cast down that he would receive the reward of his suffering. But start with us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, you know, if you've been here for some time, that we've been looking at how we are to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in that kind of relationship that the Scripture describes as discipleship. It's an on-the-job mentoring It's a relationship with the all-authoritative king who has stooped not just to rescue you in the sense of, you know, of conversion and guaranteeing the completion, but every moment of every day, he is rescuing. And we need a Christ like that. Anything less would not be enough for you or me. And we've looked at following the map that he followed the moral commands how he delighted to walk in sweet harmony with the father in every aspect of life wholeheartedly putting his feet on the path of obedience and the 10 commandments that summary of god's moral unchanging description of what god loves and what god hates what is right and wrong in any family any culture any decade or century we've been looking at that but we're taking a break from that, I want us to, at the beginning of the new year, look at a passage which I just read that I think has great significance to fuel 365 days of, of a cheerful consecration of real expectation that puts you know, shoes on our feet and makes us get out of bed and say to God, God, I am listening. Your servant is listening. What do you have to say? And then to live it. Last Sunday, the last Sunday of the year 2023, we looked at the birth of Jesus as the great expression up to that point of God's faithfulness. And over and over, whether it's Mary or Zacharias, when the announcement comes that the babe is coming, that finally the king and his kingdom are arriving, or when they see the little child, the statement is made from all these different angles. God has not forgotten his promises. Even though 4,000 years came between the earliest ones and the completion of that promise, God had not forgotten them. There is an offspring, a child that came from Eve, a human, a Jew from the family of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, from David, and he has come. Last Sunday evening, we looked at what is a follow-up to that, where the faithfulness of God does not guarantee that a life of faith is effortless. Paul calls it the fight of faith. I think You know, it's because it is a fight. It's a life and death kind of fight. There are times uh, before the sermon in the prayer meeting where, you know, I I plop down in the pulpit here. And as I'm listening to the prayers and praying along, you know, a, a list of my sins from my past, they just rush right by my eyes. And I think, how could I preach? And then I think, well, I'll just stand up and say, we're dismissed, you know, and then I think, wait, if I can't if if I can't hope in Christ for those to be cleansed, and I'm not talking about living a double life. If I can't hope in him to preach, then I can't hope in him to save my soul. And so, you know, you're faced with that life and death decision. Is God telling the truth in this book or is he not? It doesn't take much to appreciate concepts from a Bible in a religious building on Sunday morning, but it is quite another thing when it's just you and what seems to be an endless list of needs around you or fears or the emptiness or the shame, and you open your Bible and you think, but is that real? Is he the I am? And are those words for me? When despair creeps in or doubt, and we looked at John the Baptist asking, are you the one? When what I study in my Bible and then what I hear about Jesus' activities, John says, "When they don't, met, they don't seem to match. And so he sends the question. And Christ answers so kindly. But you and I can be that way. We can say, it just doesn't look like what the Bible says things should look like. And so we ask, is it, is it us? Are we not walking with you? Have I misunderstood the passage? Or are you not the God I thought you were? And we can bring those questions to God. Well, one of the passages that I think is such an extraordinary statement about Christ, perhaps the greatest statement about Christ from the lips of Jesus in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, comes in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. There is a statement that is amazing hard to believe perhaps then there is a command that is so sweet it's hard to believe the bigness of the statement the sweetness the privilege of the command and they are essential if in 2024 you're to live for God with God by God Well, let's slow down and look at this passage. It's a familiar one, so it it takes a little extra work so that we don't just read through it, you know, and kind of skim over it. And as you're looking or hearing the words, you think, well, I know what this passage is about. And, you know, you kind of fill in the cracks yourself, and you become your own preacher instead of Matthew becoming the preacher. So we want to be careful there. What would this have sounded like if you were walking alongside Jesus of Nazareth, a real man, the God-man, but a real man, and you admire him, and you think he's a great prophet. You know he's sent from God, and, and your understanding of him is expanding. But one day, as you're walking down the dusty road, he stops and says to you, do you understand that every single thing has been handed to me by God? It's all mine to do all that I want with. What would you think of that preacher, that pastor, that missionary? We read it and there's the glow, you know, everybody has a halo over their head in our Bible. And, you know, we'd all, we would all make good Roman Catholics. We paint them in these beautiful pictures, but what would it have been like to hear that from the lips of a human? And yet it's true. Well, verse 27 is the verse I want us to focus on. It's the heart of the passage. We're going to look at verse 25 through the end of 30. But 27 is the heart. It is the thing you can't miss. If you miss this, then the things that follow in verse 28, 29, and 30 are weightless. It's an invitation to come to find rest, find peace, to find contentment, to be made whole and well. And what good would it do you? if the person that offers it is not the person that says what he says in verse 27. In verse 27, Christ says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father. That is no one fully comprehends who he is except the father, nor does anyone fully comprehend who the father is and all that he is except the son. God alone has an infinite mind to know all that there is to know about God. And, he says, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So though God is incomprehensibly great, the Son of God has been handed everything needed to reveal who God is to your soul in a way that rescues you. It reminds us of John 17, where in that great final prayer, the, the night of his arrest, Christ talks about all things Everything he need, needs has been entrusted to him so that he could give eternal life to his people. And this is eternal life, to know God and his son. Well, verse 27 is at the heart of it. And then we're going to look at the, we'll try to get the right measure of verse 27. Because of the familiarity, it's just so easy to shrink it down into a t-shirt, you know, a, a bumper sticker slogan, but how big is the verse? How can you expand the font of verse 27? You know, if you could think of it in a, a bit of a simplistic way, how could you make that verse just take up the entire page? How could you make it take up the entire Bible? From Genesis to Revelation, you would read every phrase, every warning, every promise, every description, pray every prayer of the Psalms, follow, you know, every proverb express every yearning desire that you read in the Bible and do them all through the filter of this one verse. All things have been handed to me by my Father. Well, one way we can do that is to look at it in its context because there's plenty there to keep us from kind of shrinking it and turning it into a cliche. Well, let's look at the statement first. Verse 27 all things have been handed over or entrusted into my hands by the Father, the Son of God, the eternal Son, not only as eternal God, but as the eternal God who is united to humanity as a mediator. It is as the mediator that everything has been handed to him. It, it really is true that human hands, human shoulders, as Isaiah said, bear all the weight of all the authority of all the universe. A child will be born to us. The government will be on his shoulders. Here Christ points to his hands. These hands have been handed everything. All creation is Christ's. As the eternal son, he is the creator. But as God and man together, the mediator, the representative of men and women and children who At this time are still enemies of God. He has been entrusted with everything in creation. All things are by him and through him and for him. But when he talks about them here, he's talking about them in the sense of being entrusted with them to work out your rescue. Nothing is excluded in creation. All the galaxies, I don't know the names of the galaxies. I think I only know... Two, Milky Way and Andromeda, but I'm not even sure Andromeda is a galaxy, but if it isn't, don't tell me till later, all right? All the galaxies, all the planets, all the stars, all the blades of grass, it's all His. And it's all entrusted to Him for the sake of rescuing us. Every city, ancient or modern or future, is His, Every home in every city is His. Every child that's born in the hospital today is His. Every day is His. Every place is His. Every person is His. Every position of responsibility or authority belongs to Him. Every event belongs to Him. Every religious gathering, true churches, false churches, mosques, Hindu temples... They all belong to Christ. Quite an astonishing statement for a man to turn and say to another man 2,000 years ago in Galilee, walking between those fairly insignificant towns that are you know, lining the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and for him to turn and say to those who know him that everything, everything's his. All the fullness, Paul says, of the deity dwells in Him. Do you remember the wonderful passage, Colossians chapter 1? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, they're all made by Him. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That's the man that says this in Galilee that day. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place or preeminence in everything. For, here's the explanation, because, Paul says, from prison, it was the Father's good pleasure, his delight for all the fullness of deity. To dwell in Him. Paul mentions it again in the next chapter of Colossians 2 verse 9. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Truly, not symbolically, really. And in Him, you have been made complete. Without verse 27, the command of verse 28 is worth nothing more than anyone else's command. If they were to sit down beside you and ask you how the year has been, and if you were to pour out your tale of woe and talk about what you're afraid of in the coming year, and, and they said, well, don't worry, I'm your friend, I'll make it all right, and you would look at them and think, well, that's a nice gesture, but you can't do it. We need someone infinitely larger than ourselves who has the power and all the knowledge and all the wisdom to use that knowledge, and all the right with that wisdom to use that knowledge with all the power at his disposal, that's who we need to say, come to me. There is only one exception. All things doesn't include another person, that is, God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the end. And he says in verse 24, Then comes the end. When he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and all and power. For he must, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted, it's excluded, the one who puts all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. It's wonderfully Mysterious passage, but we're pretty clear on this. The father has handed everything over to the son and Paul writes to the Corinthians and says at the end, the son having used everything will now turn and hand the completed finished work that the father entrusted to him. He will hand it to the father and the son will delight to to step back And for the Father to receive all the praise as the architect of redemption. Not just the salvation of an individual sinner, not just the forgiveness of some sins, but the restoration of all creation from all the ruin of sin. Now, that's an amazing thing for Christ to say, but where do you get the measures for that? Look at the context. Well, the historical context, actually, it's not in the book of Matthew. Turn back to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through verse 22. If you turn there, what Matthew has done as he's done before, and we've noticed that in especially in chapter 10, where he combines all these, uh, all the miracles that Jesus has done, he throws them all together to make a point. It's not a chronological order. It's a theological order. There's a a theological reason he's ordered it that way. In Luke chapter 10, we find out that Matthew has done the same thing with Matthew 11, verse 25, 26, and 27. Luke does not include 28, 29, and 30. God expects that we would read all the accounts of Christ's life and weave them together. So what Matthew has done is he's... He, in the beginning of chapter 11, he's talked about, uh, he's talked about God sending out these 70 messengers and he sends them out, the disciples and others, and they go from town to town to town throughout Galilee to tell people that Christ is coming and to prepare the little towns for Christ's appearance, to listen to what he says. So they're, they're forerunners and they're going all around Galilee and Jesus is following them and now they all come back after their short mission and they give a report. And Matthew doesn't mention that they return and give a report right before verse 25 where he says, I praise you, Father, that you hide the hope, the gospel from the, from the grown-ups, the adults, and you give them to the infants. So what happens historically? Well, historically... Luke mentions it. Look at chapter 10 and verse 17. The 70 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he, Christ, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me, By my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now, that's the historical context. What actually happens chronologically that causes Christ to say, I praise you. The word praise, it's a different word for praise. It means to agree with someone. So, to say the same thing with someone else to confess. We both say the same thing. We're both both in agreement here, but the Greek word is changed a little more and it's emphatic. So it's saying, I wholeheartedly am in agreement with you, Father, that you have chosen this way to save people. The context is wonderful. Before Jesus says everything's been handed over to him, which explains why the disciples, when they went out and preached, had any power and any success, it's because all has been handed to the son. Before he says that, the disciples go out and they find that as they go from town to town, the gospel is being listened to, people were being healed, demons cast out. It it amazes them. And that's why Christ says, I praise you, Father. Now, what does he, so, what is, what is he delight in? Well, he delights in the fact that it is the pleasure or the delight of the Father to hide the gospel, to blind the self-impressed and the self-sufficient and the self-righteous who feel that they've got life under control, like adults feel who feel that they can handle it, that maybe God could help occasionally, but oh, oh no, I don't need God right now. And so in their indifference to the offer of the gospel, in their closing their eyes and plugging their ears, Jesus says the Father gives them the blindness they want and the preaching of the gospel comes and they are unmoved. But those that feel that maybe God wouldn't really be interested in them the infant-like, the needy, the helpless, the ones that can't offer God anything, those, the gospel is preached to and God opens their ears and eyes and they see it, they understand it, and they go to Christ. And if you've ever come to Christ, it's because you've been a spiritual infant, not because you've been a spiritual Hercules. It's because you've been a weakling and you've been confused and you've been ashamed and you didn't know anywhere else to turn, but to the one who has been handed everything to save people like you. So that's the context. It's amazing that Christ delights in the delight of the father. If you don't understand that, then you misunderstand what verse 25 is talking about in Matthew chapter 11. Because Matthew chapter 11 precedes it by saying, this town rejects Christ, this town rejected Christ. This town, they're no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, they're worse because after being shown so many expressions of God's mercy, they're, they're not interested in any of it. They would prefer Jesus go away. You think of the town of the pig farmers when the two men were healed of their demon possession and they lost the pigs and they say to Jesus, could you just go somewhere else instead of preach around here? Why would verse 25 come after that? We'll talk about that in a minute. But if you don't understand that verse 25 is preceded by the return of the 70 who are telling of how the gospel is spreading, then in Matthew 11, it would sound like Jesus is really excited that all these cities reject him. And after all, it's God's pleasure for them to reject him and only a couple to be saved. And you, you know, you have this hyper Calvinistic, bleak outlook as if, as if the sovereignty of God handing everything to Christ needed to save the sinner that comes to him, as if that sovereignty is like a locked door to the needy, to the poor, to the desperate. And you say, I want to come in, but the door's locked. I mean, he's sovereign. The point in verse 25 is that God delights in a unique way to save the most needy, the most uh, unworthy and God also finds pleasure in a different way to blind the self-impressed and self-sufficient. There's a, a theologian named Herman Bavink. All right, Hermann Bavinck, Dutch theologian, I think, last century. He notes that if you search the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, you will find that both judgment and mercy, both of them are right. They're righteous. They're righteous. They're fair. They're good. It is right for God to judge the sinner. And no sinner can say, I, I, I don't deserve judgment. I deserve mercy. Because you can't deserve mercy. But it is also right for God to give mercy because that's his pleasure. God doesn't have to show mercy. God does have to be just. Mercy is not required. Justice is. It's essential. God must do what is right in every situation. Because that's who God is. It's not astonishing that those who reject the gospel are left in their darkness. What is astonishing is that those who don't deserve the gospel, who are helpless and hopeless, are given the gospel. But what Herman Bavinck points out, if you haven't noticed it before, is that while the Bible talks about God and his will and his will over all things. And in that mysterious way, that will somehow includes all of creation and all the events that have happened and even sin and redemption. But the Bible does not describe God's view of sin occurring or God's judging the sinner in the same way as it describes God rescuing. It is right for God to judge and he will receive everlasting glory From hell. But when the Bible describes God saving. It doesn't use the same words. It uses the word pleasure. That is there is something about saving the sinner. That in the being of our God. He delights in. In a way he does not. If we can use that human picture. Delight in judging the sinner. They are not equally pleasing to him. Listen to the book of Ezekiel, one of the darker days in the Old Testament. Chapter 18, verse 23, verse 32. Again, Ezekiel 33, 11. I'll just read them to you. This is what God says. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Next verse. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live Chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, God commands them, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? I know the will of God is a mystery to us. We're like little children trying to figure out someone who's far above our comprehension but this is clear. It is a reality that God delights, finds pleasure in rescuing his enemies, not in destroying them. And that pleasure is why he has entrusted all things into the hands of our Redeemer. Now, let's go further. Another way to measure this verse 27 It's the pleasure of the Father to save. It's the historical context here. Another way to measure it is the theological context. And that context, and that's what Matthew gives us. Matthew leaves out, as I mentioned, the return of the 70 and their report, the good news. He puts no buffer between cursing the cities which have rejected the gospel and made themselves worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in God's eyes. He denounces them. He pronounces this curse on them. And then immediately, verse 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, and 30 follow. And there's there's nothing that comes between them. Why? I think it's clear. The theological context of the offer in verse 28, which is not mentioned in Luke. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not mentioned in Luke. Matthew puts nothing. He decides that it would be best here by the guidance of the spirit, not to mention what Luke mentions. No need to repeat that. Just go directly from the cursing of the indifferent and arrogant Jews in Galilee and go directly to the great reality. All things are in the hands of the son and the amazing invitation, the command, come to me and find rest. If you want to get the right measure of the gospel, you can look at the character of God. You you can look at the majesty of God, the throne of God. You can look at the perfection and the fullness of all the plans so that every aspect of everything that a sinner would need is provided for salvation all the way to the end. But one way you can get the measure of the gospel is to just smash up right against the command to come and find peace. And rest, just place your sinful life or the sin of humanity. And that's what Matthew does. No buffer. There's a shocking transition. Woe to you cities! Woe to you cities! Woe to you cities! You're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah ever were, even though you go to church. Come to me, I would give you rest. The Father's given me everything. To make that offer to you you cannot understand matthew 11 verse 25 and 26 and his pleasure to hide or to reveal the gospel you cannot understand that apart from the return of the disciples and the good news that god is saving people and you cannot understand that apart from the invitation to come for everyone who is weary and heavy laden in verse 28 If you dissect verse 25 and 26 from that context, the theological and the historical context, then you are a sure sitting duck for a type of fatalism that says, well, God's just going to do what he's going to do. So faith and repentance and preaching and evangelism and prayer are really not necessary. Well, let's look at the command. That's the statement. All things are his. The command, so simple, come to me. Now, this is a command, and even though it's a sweet offer and it's an invitation, it is a royal invitation, and it it is an imperative, the Greek is clear, this is not just an invitation. If it were just an invitation... If Jesus sent out a statement and said, "I am willing to save all the weary and heavy laden, if they'll come to me," I'm just letting you know. I know that maybe you feel like you wouldn't be wanted, or maybe there's no place for you. But I'm telling you, there is if you want to. And so it's an—it's just a statement. It's an invitation. And if you turned away from the invitation and delayed and said, mm, "Let me think about it a little more," perhaps there might be some excuse. But because it's a command, it has to be responded to just like every other command in the Bible. And your moral inability and your struggle to believe and your, you know, I, I'm, I can't save myself. We can't do it on our own. God's got to do it. Faith and gift, faith and repentance are gifts from the Lord. They certainly are. But it's the same Lord that commands. So as the command goes out, what will you do with it? You must understand what he's requesting, what he's commanding or demanding, and you must do it wholeheartedly, immediately. No delay, no excuse. There are so many good sounding excuses, you know, in church. Well, you know, I, I know that um, God is sovereign, I'm not. Or I know that God is all powerful and I'm, I'm my, you know, my soul is weak. I can't do it. I can't muster it up. I know you're supposed to feel sorry for sin. I know this. I know this. And it's, we come back to God and we bring our, our systematic theology book to explain to him why we intend to disobey him and not to come to him. Now, you must believe and repent and you can't do that on your own. But he, I think he knows that before he commands it. So you can trust him to take care of that. And he knows how deep the stain has gone. And he knows that you're not sorry enough for sin. And he knows that you don't understand enough. That, you know, I I, got to figure it out more. I, I don't understand how all these doctrines fit together. So what? Who better to teach you in 2024 than Jesus of Nazareth, who has been given everything so that he can save you? So you obey. When he commands, he describes who should come, the weary and the heavy laden. That is a sweet command, but it is not to be mistaken. It is not saying being tired enough or burdened enough has earned you the right to come. That is describing the kind of person who is willing to come. It's one that feels weary and tired and heavy laden. If you think things are great, why would you go to Christ? And that, of course, is a description of the people that may feel like Christ wouldn't want them because they're so unimpressive. They have nothing to offer. And so the command is clear. If you are weary and heavy laden, you can come. I will give you rest. But it's not some kind of thing that you have to work up so that you have a right to come. What is the right that you have to go to Christ and say, I am one of those who need rest, or I am one of those that need saved. Well, the passage gives it to you. What is it? Do you see it? It is the command. When you go to God and your conscience stands in front of you and pushes you back with every step and says, don't go like this. I mean, just... Give it a week. Go home and fix some things. I mean, clean up. Good grief. Don't walk in front of the king with that all over you. Don't go like this. Don't go yet. What will you offer as an argument? There is one argument you have with God for salvation that even God will not will not be able to resist, would not dare to turn you away. It is that you commanded me. So I'm coming. Now, of course, you come to him the way he says, and he mentions it here. We're not coming to a set of doctrines. Doctrine is important. We, do, we can't love a God that's based on Wrong ideas that God doesn't exist. So the Bible has truths about God, about us, about salvation, about the Christian life, about this world, and we need those truths. But there's no set of truths that you're coming to, and you can say to those truths, You'll give me rest. They will not give you rest. You're not coming to a list of do's and don'ts. You're not coming to a list even of biblical commands. They won't give you rest. Others have tried. Do you remember Pilgrim's progress? Bunyan's character there. Pilgrim is burdened with sense of shame and guilt. And so he's, he's going where evangelists pointed him. Go to the light. Go to the cross. And he's traveling. He gets down in the slough of despond, in this, this swamp of despair, we call it. And be about, he's about drowned by the sorrow. It's just hopeless. But he can't go back home. What's he going to do with the burden? no hope going back. So he pushes on through. Evangelist points him again to the cross and he starts off, but then he meets a guy that seems to have it all together. Mr. Worldly Wiseman. I'm sure that he didn't wear a t-shirt with a name tag on it or Pilgrim would have known better, but he didn't have that name. And so Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, I know someone who can deal with that burden. He has helped so many people. And Pilgrim says, but Evangelist told me to go to this cross, to the Christ. And what he's done, oh, that's a long way. This way's just as good. And he turns aside with this man that seems to be so wise. And he leads him to Mr. Legality, Mr. Law's house. And Mr. Law is going to cut those cords, he hopes, and remove the shame and guilt. But on his way, Mount Sinai, a picture of God's law, Is rumbling and it's about to fall over on him and crush him. We're not studying the Ten Commandments because they are going to give you rest. Coming to a church won't give you rest. There's only one thing coming to the person that has been handed everything by the Father to give rest. Anyone else, anything else, any other concept, it's empty hope. So we come to him. Come, think of those words. Come, to me, all. It's just so shocking. Isn't this following Matthew 11 with the cursed cities? What a contradiction from condemnation, you know, to to the invitation of Christ, from curses to blessings From warnings to promises. Anyone in Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, who had just been denounced by Christ, if they would have humbled themselves and come and said, You're right, I'm coming to you, they would have been received. They would have been forgiven. Come to me, he commands. The weary, the spiritually worn out, not just I need to take a break and catch my breath. That's maybe where you're at. You say, well, I know I need to do better. And you, you after the Sunday sermon, you know, you kind of lean over and you, you catch my breath. I'll do better this year. You won't do better. But as long as you think you'll do better, you, you won't come to Christ. For those who are bone tired, you are so tired of trying to fix you. You are tired of being you. You are tired of the thoughts that keep invading your mind and the desires. You are tired of scrubbing and scrubbing the the life, the memory, the choices, the words to try to remove the stain of sin. You are tired of the tyranny of being enslaved by a master who pays you with death every time you devote something more to him. You may come. You are burdened, whether it's guilt or whether it's with a new set of ideas that if you do these in the right way, you'll fix yourself. You are burdened. For the sin-weary, hopeless, Come to Christ, he will give you rest. Now, in this command, in this invitation, there are actually, there's three verbs here, come, take, learn. And they have to go together. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to say, I'm all for that come to Jesus thing, but I'm not for the yoke. Take the yoke, I don't want that. Learn from me, I don't need that. If you think of Christianity as something that could exist in stages, so I can accept Jesus as, as a savior and then later I make him Lord. You know, we've all heard that kind of language. It's a very careless, very unbiblical view. Christ will not adjust himself to save you. So it's, it is as the one who's been handed the authority over everything that says, come, I'll give you rest. And when you come to him, it's not just coming, which is faith, it is taking a yoke. What is a yoke? We've talked about it before. Uh, It's fashioned out of wood, usually kind of a curved piece of wood that goes over a man's shoulders. And, you know, you'd have like a, a rope on each side and you could carry things tied to each side. And so balancing the weight, you could carry more. Or if you think about two animals yoked together, the older ox and the young calf, and they learn to pull together. The young one's not doing the work, but he's learning to get used to a yoke, learning to submit. In the first generation, uh, first century, sorry, of, of the, uh, in the first century, the Jews used that phrase yoke frequently. We don't. They do. They would talk about being yoked to the Ten Commandments or yoked to the Torah, the teachings of God, the Bible, or yoked to the kingdom of God. Meaning there is for God's people, there is a connection with something that brings an obligation. You're not just freelance. You've joined or you've been brought into this this relationship with the living God. And so there there are obligations. They, They are laid on your shoulder. Now, When Christ says, take my yoke on you, he's not saying, be yoked to the kingdom, be yoked to the law, be yoked to the Old Testament. Though the kingdom, the law, and the Old Testament all have something to do with the Christian life, but come under my claims, my teaching. Embrace all that Christ says he is. And there is an obligation laid on our shoulders. We are attached to this king, we are yoked to him, and it is a light yoke. How? It doesn't sound very encouraging for someone to say, if you're tired of being a slave to that master, come to me. I'll make you my slave. And you think, well, what's the use of that? But the masters are so different that Christ can say his yoke or being under his authority, walking in harmony, walking alongside him, it is light, it is light, an easy yoke, and there is rest. Every believer understands what this means. When I come to Christ and I lay everything that I am before him and I plead his command for people like me to come and I trust what he says, I gladly embrace the teachings and the authority of this savior who is king. And when he washes me and saves me and changes me, when I realize that God was at work all the while bringing me to himself, I get up and I want to walk right next to him. I want to obey him. And when the heart is right with the Christian, you don't even feel the yoke. It's what I want to do. I don't want to walk over there, back where I used to walk. I want to walk right by him. The only time that the authority of Christ is a burden to a Christian is when we would prefer to go do what we want to do. We want to go back and play in the, in the sewage of sin again, and the yoke of Christ won't let you go. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me, the third verb. But God, I don't know. What would I do? What do I do? How am I going to What will my wife think? What will my kids think? What will my parents think? What will my classmates think? What will the people at work think if I start to follow you? How am I supposed to live the Christian life in that situation? Why are you so worried? He will teach you. Who is it that needs this? Well, those that have no rest. Poor people have no rest. They're always worried about how to provide, not just for themselves, but for the people they love. Hungry people have no rest. Thirsty people have no rest. Guilty people, being, always living in fear of being caught or exposed. Unsafe, people in danger have no rest. Sick people, hurting people, they're not really at rest. People at war, in strife, they're not at rest. Those who are confused and lost and can't find their way, they're not at rest. Those who are haunted by regrets, are not at rest and those who are imposters who pretend to be one thing, but they're always afraid that someone will find out they're not what they pretend to be. They're never at rest. The proud are never at rest. The greedy are never at rest. The list could go on and coming to Christ. There is such a fullness in the one that God has handed everything over to that every need is met and there is rest, not inactivity rest, Because that's not the same. Have you ever gone to bed with your mind swirling with problems, you know, family, work, and you you think, I'm just going to go to bed. I'm wore out. So you go to bed a little early because you don't want to think anymore. And you think, I'm just going to go to sleep and wake up tomorrow and talk to God about it tomorrow. And you lay down at, you know, whatever's early for you. And then Your brain is still swirling and the problems are still bothering you and you look at your clock again and again and one, two, three, four hours go by and you think this is harder than being being awake. You know, this is work. Being inactive is not rest. There is the kind of rest that God gives where things are so right that you are happy and content and you are ready to work. But work is what you want to do it's something you enjoy it's not slavery anymore real rest from christ now if we're still a little reticent there is another thing that said he says i am gentle and humble in heart he is meek the word means it's a person who has entrusted everything to god and because he knows that the Father is controlling all things and owns everything that he has, even when all around him the world is raging, he does not get riled up. I don't mean unresponsive like a dead fish, but I mean we don't get like the lost person, terrified, frantic. Think of Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2 that when they reviled him, he did not revile them in return. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He trusted the father. There was no need to get frantic like the lost people do. Come to me, he says, I am gentle. I am humble. He is not a harsh master. Strange since he deserves everything. We don't give him everything. Our service is never perfect on earth. And yet he is still humble, still gentle. One of the earliest translations of the New Testament is called the Peshitta New Testament. And it's, uh, it's Syriac, all right? I don't read Syriac. You know, it looks very much like Aramaic to me, kind of squib- squiggles going this way. But in the early Syriac translation of this verse, this is how it's translated. Not, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. But it says... Uh, or I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Verse 30, it says this, come unto me, then he says, I am restful, not gentle. I am restful and I give rest. There is something that Christ gives that no one else does, a contentment, wholeness, completeness. So let's think. In 2024, if you have held Christ at arm's length and you think of the gospel as an optional invitation that you could take or delay when it's not, ask yourself, how will you find rest in, in this new year? You've tried everything. Nothing really is different. Why would you disobey him when he commands you to come for your good? Who will you go to? When do you think you're going to come? It becomes easier to say no to Christ, not harder. In the book of Hebrews, this danger of delay, of self-deceit, of trying, you know, because there are false kinds of rest. There's the kind of rest that we say, "Well, I, I just think everything's all right between me and God." So we deceive ourselves. We tell ourselves that everything's fine. And then if God doesn't interrupt us, it's not until it's too late that we find out everything wasn't fine. Or someone else tells us it's fine. But that's not the false, that, that false rest, that's not what Christ is talking about. Why would you delay? Hebrews chapter three says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness when the Jews wouldn't enter the Promised Land because they didn't trust God. Where your fathers tried me and tested me and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry with this generation and I said they will always go astray in their heart. and They did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They will not enter my rest. And the writer of Hebrews takes those Old Testament quotes and does a terrifying thing. He says, while there is still an opportunity to enter into the rest that Christ gives while the gospel is still being preached. Don't do what they did. Do not delay and harden and provoke and find that you never find rest. But for the Christian, every single day could start with this passage. Oh God, it's your pleasure That is behind Jesus of Nazareth, my elder brother, having everything in his hands. And it is there to save. So when I wake up today, how different it is to wake up belonging to the one in whose hands everything's been entrusted. May God help us not to harden the heart, not to delay, not to excuse it, but to obey the sweetest command and come and take and learn. Well, I'll close with the doxology that Paul gives us at the end of Romans and we then just sit for a quiet moment and then we're dismissed. Romans 16, Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.